Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, Writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest this week is the crime writing legend, Patricia Cornwall. Patricia wrote her first novel about forensic pathologist Kay Scarpetta in 1990. Called Postmortem, it was such a hit, it became the first book ever to win all four major crime awards on both sides of the Atlantic in the same year. It also, I've got to say, scared the bejesus out of me. But Kay Scarpetta was more than a hit, she was a breakthrough. Because mad as it might sound now, if you were looking for a crime novel where the female characters were actually, you know, alive in the late 80s, you weren't exactly spoiled for choice. Now, 39 books and 100 million copies later, Patricia's 27th Kay Scarpetta novel, Unnatural Death, is about to hit bookshops and the one and only Jamie Lee Curtis is bringing her to our screens. And that's the other thing. You see things down in the autopsy room. You, 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 you have to take the, to- the total of all of this to begin to get a sense of it, that it isn't just the horrific serial murders like my books are about. It's also just the fragility of humanity. Patricia zoomed from her home in Boston, where she lives with her wife, Stacy to talk about, well, everything. We talked about everything. We ran the full gamut from gun crime and serial killers to how writing books enabled her to take back control after a difficult childhood, feeling like a failure and the very real danger of self-loathing. We also discussed how she narrowly escaped being a minister's wife, marriage second time around and the enormous debt she owes Jamie Lee Curtis.
what room are you in? It's amazing. This is my office right here. And um, all this is like original materials. Um, for example, that police notice, which you can barely see, um, our fingers kind of, um, that, yeah, that's one of the original notices that went up in London when the Jack the Ripper crime started. It was uh, put up in the fall of 1888. And it's one of maybe, I think, three original ones left in the world. And this is one of the first Jack the Ripper type movies um, back in the 40s. That's Walter Sickert, the person I believe was Jack the Ripper up there. And there's former commissioner of Scotland Yard and all kinds of my my police memorabilia when I used to be a volunteer cop. So it's just full of all kinds of strange things in here. (laughs) Is that when you're working in there to keep the old material up, obviously? Well, you know, I, I... it's really mostly just having a place to put these things. I mean, I, you're, you're only seeing a small part of it because over on this wall, there's cabinets filled with all my research journals and other things. There's walls and posters over there. In the bathroom over there, I have a pair of um, Queen Victoria's knickers that I bought on <laughs> auction that are in a lovely shadow box. You know, there's things that I, that I just sort of collected or are from the past. And I don't really look at them all that much when I'm in here. I, I kind of you know, my I go into my zone with the computer, but it's nice to have these things because you're right. I mean, it does remind me of the context of things, you know, of when, you know, you've picked up this or what year was that? Or, you know, there's a yellow brick, you know, this yellow brick that when you run the yellow brick road at the FBI Academy, it was an obstacle course. You know, they, they would uh, they would award you this yellow brick, Oh wow! you know, and so I remember running that thing and getting a big old rope burn on my hand from the obstacle course and having to go to the infirmary. But that was, you know, February 16th, 1992. Were you doing that for research? Yes. From the very beginning, I was, you know, hanging out in these places and trying to learn. And, the, it, you know, I started out as a journalist. And the first thing I learned in journalism is no matter what anybody tells you over the phone, the story's going to change when you show up. You never know what you're going to see. And what someone's telling you may not be the story. It's what's going on over there that they're not telling you. And so that's always been important to me. And today I still, I don't write about things that I don't know anything about. If I I have to either do some research in it or or have to have done it before, like in this new book, I don't want to overinflate this because the book is not about Bigfoot, but there is Bigfoot, you might say, has a cameo in it um, and and is a suspect for a while, although the poor creature didn't do anything wrong. Um, But even something like that, if I don't believe it, you're not going to believe it. So I have to do the research. I have to listen to the 911 calls. I have to look at videos. I have to talk to whoever the experts are or people who have been out on these hunts for these creatures and find out what's this all about and what does it mean? And that's just how I've always done things. Was it your journalism training that made you like that? Or were you just like that from the get-go? Well, I think I was like that anyway. And that's probably why I took to journalism. Because I remember, for example, when I was in college and I was doing a paper on a place called Black Mountain College, which was part of the Bauhaus movement um, back, back in, I think, the, the 40s and 50s, maybe. And they had this place in Western North Carolina. Um, that's Black Mountain College. You can read about it. It was a famous bohemian kind of place. And I decided to do a term paper on it. Um, and I went to because I was from around there. 
and I went to the little local library and looked up stuff. But the big thing I did is some of these people like Alan um, Ginsberg, the, the famous poets and people like that, they were still, some of them were still alive. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to write them and I'll ask them questions and see if they answer me. And I was shocked that some of them did. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I still can remember Ginsberg's because it was every other word was profane. <laughs> there was from the then when I started at the Charlotte Observer, I was my job was to update the TV magazine. I didn't get it hired as a reporter, but I was also assigned things if I were willing to do them, like book reviews. And I was friendly with the book reviewer. And so one day she handed me a book that was um, by Dee Presley, Elvis Presley's stepmother, I believe it was. It was called Love Me Tender, I think, as I still remember this. But it wasn't enough for me to read that book and write something about it. I had to track her down. I ended up interviewing her over the phone. And when I got back to the newspaper, I told the book reviewer, I said, oh, what's really great is I actually talked to her. And she said, you did what? (laughs) She said, you're not supposed to talk to these people. You're just supposed to review their books. And so to answer your question, I mean, I think that I've just always been this way. So let's go, if you don't mind, let's go right back because you had... I mean, let's just say a tough, really tough childhood, didn't you? There were things about it that were really tough, but I have to tell you, I don't know anybody much that hadn't had a lot of stuff in their childhood. I mean, I by, by today's comparison, when I see what's going on in the news and the kinds of horrors uh, that, that just happen on a regular basis, um, my childhood seems increasingly idyllic. <laughs> it, you know, there were times of loss and sorrow and hardship, but nothing so terrible because I was in a small town where I may not have agreed with a, with a, a lot of the very strict religious principles some of these people these people had but by and large they cared about their neighbors and and it was a safe place to be especially if you didn't have a whole lot of parental oversight and so it's funny you know people ask me sometimes about being famous and of course I don't feel all that famous but assuming that I am what I would say to that is if you grow up in a town with 200 people, you've always been famous because I couldn't do anything without everybody knowing about it. <laughs> Was the town literally that small? Yes, it's a little town called Montreat, and it's a, a mecca for the Presbyterian Church. So in the summer, there's thousands of people that come in because it's also a mountain res- resort area. But in the re- the rest of the year, just the residents, it's like 200 people. And, you know, there was nothing. You had to go to the next town for shopping. There was a little, little country store, tennis courts and things to do. You know, I played outside all the time, but, uh, it was, but you, everybody knew each other. And I'm actually quite grateful for that because I I don't think that people know each other much anymore. And I think that was, is it was a pain in the tail in many ways. You know, when somebody's watching what you're doing and calls your mother, she ran through my daffodils again. (laughs) that's the thing isn't it you just when you grow up in a small town you just can't wait to get away from that stuff but as you get a bit older you start to appreciate it yes I mean it but most of all you learn hopefully you learn some kind of empathy because you're aware of what's going on with your neighbors you know when someone's sick you know when somebody's died you know when someone's lonely you know you know that you should go Uh, take them a little Christmas tree and make some ornaments for them because nobody else is going to when somebody was elderly and a shut in or or, or bake them cookies. And all these things are small town acts that I grew up with. And, and it was just a natural thing to do. And 
I'm glad that I had those experiences because I think if we all will walk through this world and look at the life in front of us, what a different place it would be. That's so true. I mean, I noticed when I was reading Unnatural Death that Kay Scarpetta has got slightly more gentle. She's always had a lot of empathy and particularly manifesting through food. But there's a scene quite near the beginning where one of the characters' wife has dementia and she's worrying about how he is and how he's looking after himself and how she's going to take him some some pasta around. Um, and you've grown up with Kay a bit, as, um, as Patricia softened too. Oh, I think I'm, you know, I think so. I think it's like a river stone. You get worn a little smoother with the years, or you should. And and we live in such a different world than the one I started out in. You know, back in the the 90s, which now seems like the 1890s, the more I say that, it was, you know, the whole notion of serial killers was was something new and very silence of the lambs and um and and people were fascinated by all that and the, and the gore was an acceptable part of it the graphic nature of it uh, with the early books uh, that I wrote in particular but but I don't think that we're as tolerant as a lot of this now because watching the news is hard enough the world is so destabilized our societies are so destabilized and everything is so scary that I changed the tone of things it's just an instinct and what I, I always say that a little, it can be a lot. You can say a lot by saying a little. And I try very hard with Scarpetta. You, you're really clear on what she's seeing and you get what's going on, but I don't have to rub your face in it. Um, and I don't want to rub your face in it. And she doesn't want to either. But she doesn't pull any punches either because death isn't pretty and violence is terrible. But yes, I do think that there's a softness and more of a compassion Um and I think that she has more of an inner sadness that as, as, as she looks at what's going on in the world. You know, in her early days and mine as well, there was no such thing as these mass shootings. And now they're every day in this country. And you, you realize these poor medical examiners, you know, you're dealing with 10, 20, how many bodies that are the destructiveness just unbelievable because of these high powered assault rifles and nobody's ever seen anything quite like this before. It's like we all are living in a war, but a war that we don't really know who the enemy is. And the worry is that it's us. And so I try to reflect in my work, what I'm seeing out my own window and making and look at it through her eyes, because otherwise it's just not relevant. You don't have to dwell on it, but just, you got to, you got to acknowledge that there was a pandemic and that there's, you know, Ukraine and all these things that are going on. Yeah, to give it context, it doesn't have to be about it, but that's the environment we're living in. So, I mean, cast your mind back 33 years to when you first created Scarpetta. What were you setting out to do? Well, most of all, first of all, I was setting out to get to write a book that somebody would publish and that would re- <laughs> anybody might actually read. I mean, that was what I wanted to do. I just, I decided that in college, it wasn't my the first thing that I aspired to do in life. And then, you know, I kept writing books that nobody wanted, but, but I was doing all this research because, you know, I'd done really well as a crime reporter. So I thought I'll write books about crime. And I'd also written a biography. So I thought, you know, what if I write books about crime? And I went out and bought a few secondhand murder mysteries because I'd never read any. I mean, I wasn't that, I never read things like that when I was coming along. And 
I created this character, Scarpetta, because I got to meet a, a medical examiner and spend time in the office in Richmond, a woman. And she, it just started out as a minor character with me just trying to figure out what I was doing. The main character was more of a poor man's P.D. James main character. You know, his name was Joe Constable. What a terrible name. <laughs> but each book, Scarpetta became stronger and stronger as the books continued not to get published. And then finally, someone suggested, you know, your best character is that woman medical examiner. You ought to make her the main character. And that was postmortem. But when I set out to do that, it was really scary to me because I didn't know that I, I didn't feel capable of walking in the shoes of someone like that. And I put on her shoes and I tried to imagine after being in the morgue six years by then, I thought, what would it be like if these serial killers were going on in her city, just like they are in this one right now? Because I was working there when these things, these horrible murders called the South Side Stranglings began um, and everybody was terrified. And I remember my medical examiner friend going through that and sealing the cases and she wouldn't let anybody see what was going on because it was all so high profile and the FBI and everybody was getting involved because there were like five or six victims already. And I just thought, what would Scarpetta do? Because I watched my friend. She would not acknowledge the emotionality of what she was dealing with. I mean, especially when you're going to a crime scene and the victim is, is you know, someone in medical school, you know, someone who's doing their, their, their neurosurgery residency, um, who I think I might have seen in one of the labs one time when I was over at the medical school with Marcella Fierro, my friend. Um, and she wouldn't react, but then you, she'd come to work one day and she has hives. Mm. You start seeing the emotional toll this takes on people where, and I saw it with myself, where it, I would be all calm and cool and collected, but then I'd be in my bedroom and something caused a vibration. And I remember, remember this, and a pair of nail clippers fell off the side of the tub and I heard this loud click in the bathroom. And, and my heart went through my head because this is when these murders were going on and the guy was climbing through people's windows. And I was in a an apartment that didn't have an alarm system or anything. Um, I promptly had a lock put on that door and went out and bought a gun and learned how to shoot. Wow. But I can remember things of how easily I would be startled because, you know, you go down in the morgue and you see someone who's had the worst thing imaginable done to them. And this is over and over. And you just take it in stride because it's what you're supposed to do. I'm scribing for them and down there in the morgue every day. I didn't realize how much it was affecting me to tell and I have this happened to Scarpetta because it happened to me. I was leaving the office one time, you know, one night was after after dark, winter time, street lights on, and as I drove under a power line over the road, the shadow of it crossed my windshield, and I jumped in my seat, just jumped, and I realized, wow, be careful what you learn, because you may be learning something, and it's cha but it's changing you in ways that you don't know. With Scarpetta a way of almost taking back control, do you think? I think Scarpetta is a way of taking back control, probably taking control of my childhood because um, when I was having to be places where I didn't want to be, like staying in a foster home where I wasn't ever allowed to leave the house, hardly, um, that she's exactly who you would want to show up at the door. And she would have a covered dish of lasagna, probably, and yeah. some homemade garlic bread. And she would say, this is for you. And it's so kind of you to take care of these little children. But you know what? I'm going to take care of this now. They're coming with me. Most of all, that little girl right there that you're not very nice to. But that is who you know, you know, someone like that is going to save the day, is going to make things right. And I always say to my readers, 
you know, no matter how difficult the story is, if if you're with her, you're all right. You know, it's kind of like you're going to walk through that cooler. You need her right next to you because no matter what you see, you're okay if she's there. Not so okay when she's not. Yeah, that's that's so true. Did it ever occur to you how few strong female leads there were in crime novels at that point? I never thought about it because I, I so sorry to confess that I didn't read didn't read crime novels <laughs> and and um, not no offense to them, but I read strange things. I read fairy tales. I read Dr. Seuss and Peanuts and all that stuff because I loved to draw cartoons. I was an art you know loved. I was an artist when I was a little kid, and I was a cartoonist in college and and um, that's it was just something I did. So I didn't read a lot of the things that other people did, or I decided I'd want to be an archaeologist and I'd read everything I could find on archaeology, which wasn't much in Western North Carolina, trust me, the library. Mm -hmm. But then I started reading these things because I wanted to learn how to write about it. And I read Agatha Christie. I read P.D. James. I read Dorothy Sayers. And then suddenly I had very complicated motives in books that also had very detailed autopsies, which is something none of them ever did. And it was like an amphibious thing. It was neither water nor land, and it didn't work at all. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, this, you know, you know, and going back to making Scarpetta the main character, the, the person who told me that said, you work in a medical examiner's office. I said, yes, I do. Now I do. I didn't mean to. I just thought I was doing research, but yes, ma'am, it's my full-time job now. She said, well, these things you're writing about in these books I've looked at, I mean, is this what you see in the morgue every day? And I said, oh, no, I don't ever see anything like that. I mean, the books, one of the titles was The Stick Doll Murders. Does that sound like something I see in the morgue? No. It's an artificial algorithm, you know, the mystery, the whodunit. But but at the same time, it's a very complicated mathematical thing. And when it's done well, like Agatha Christie, um, it's it's like a Rubik's Cube. It's a brilliant equation. And I had to learn the difference between that and do, being doing something that's more procedural driven to show people what it's really like from the time that body is on that floor and these people show up to when it's removed and taken to her office and ends up in all the labs upstairs. What's going on there? And that became my algorithm. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How did you get so driven? Because... You've just described all the books you wrote that didn't work, that, that, you know, didn't get published. And you had been, before that, you, you know, your dad had left and you'd been in foster homes and you'd been anorexic as well. How did you overcome all that and just keep going? You know, I'm not really sure how I've overcome a lot of things, but because the, the eating disorder thing, this is a strange story, but when I went to work in the morgue, it went away. And and I think it's because, you know, I think I was taking control of my own life that I was, I was and thank God that my, my then husband was very supportive of, of me not working while he was in seminary. And, and I was able to go to the morgue every day because at first I wasn't getting paid. I would do anything if they just let me be there. And I wasn't paid to be a volunteer police officer or driving around with the detectives every weekend. And, and I had the freedom to do that. And for a while, and, um, it, it changed my, it changed me. And I didn't, suddenly I didn't feel the need to do that anymore. Now it might also go hand in hand a little bit with, I also started smoking a lot around that time, <laughs> you know, cause Dr. Fierro smoked and, and, you know, back, back in the morgue, nobody, nobody cared that cigarettes would kill you. Cause we all knew everything was going to kill you. So we just smoked away, you know, so I'd be sitting there smoking away, you know, in my office with the skeleton behind me and she'd be smoking down the hall in her office and we'd be smoking you know, I described the break area she has in her morgues, you know, which is always you go out into the vehicle bay and then by the big, huge door that rolls up and clanks and makes so much noise. We always have a couple folding chairs and an ashtray. And and that was our getting fresh air. We'd go out there in our bloody scrubs. We'd take our gloves off. We'd, we'd go sit out in our little break area with the bay door open, even in the dead of winter you know, looking like two washerwomen with our old baggy scrubs hanging down everywhere, smoking our cigarettes (laughs) with the hearses going by. And that's what I mean about showing up in a place. That's not a scene anybody would show you if you wanted Mm. to see the morgue, but that's what makes it priceless. It's what people do for real, just when they're living in a place where nobody's supposed to. It's that detail, isn't it? Those little details that you can only see from being there. It's really true. I mean, almost anything I make up is never as cool as something I've seen someone do that I don't imagine. You know, like when you when you're sitting in the Dr. Fierro's office early on, and she's and and she and you realize she's opening her mail with a scalpel. And I, and I, I go, well, I guess that's a good use of one when the blade's a little dull. Just use it to open your mail. And it's these little things that you observe that are not reportable, but they they humanize, and you learn. watching what people do when they're sorting through the photographs up in the front office and what the clerks or the clerical people are saying to each other and comments they're making is a lot of it, not necessarily what I would call respectful because people have humor in these places out of self-defense. 
And that's the other thing. You see things down in the autopsy room. You you you, you have to take the totality the total of all of this to begin to get a sense of it, that it isn't just the horrific serial murders like my books are about. It's also just the fragility of humanity and it, what it does to someone like me, if I wasn't this way anyway, it makes me just really hyper vigilant. Like everywhere I go, mm. I, I can point out something that's going to hurt you or kill you. It's awful. To, I mean, people... We laugh about it, but but it's and I want to know these things because you should know it. You know, seeing things that you go, oh my God, that's a terrible thing just waiting to happen. You know, it could be a truck going down the highway, and the way something is not tethered properly on the back of it. It could be anything that I see as potential. But how do you even leave the house? Well, I do, but I've always got my radar going. I see things wow. everywhere I go, and um, I'm 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 not somebody who walks around with earbuds. I watch. And I listen because you, you just you just never know. And I try to pay attention. But even so, it's it's so easy for one minute when you're just really not attending to something like you're in it. And anything can happen. And I'm grateful, you know, when things don't. And I don't sit around and worry myself to death about it. But I'm just really aware of my surroundings, you know, and, and, and frankly, everybody should be. We, we now live with people who don't want to know it. They, they don't want to even hear anything going on. Well, that's really dangerous. You need to hear if something's coming up behind you or if a car's coming running off the sidewalk, for example. Yeah, I mean, I was listening to an interview with you earlier today, or you were talking about when you had first met Stacey and you went to her flat and you went around looking at all the security hazards. And the chat changed in a nanosecond. All right, next thing she knows, she had a privacy head, she had an alarm system, she had all these things she didn't want. <laughs> and she still married you, so she must have wanted them. But she just now she did she's just used to it now. <laughs> but um and I was right, you know, I'm I'm I don't mean to be rude, but you know, one of the most common things that people say to me at book signings or have over the years is they say, I've never, never slept with my windows unlocked ever since I read postmortem. And I said, good, because you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Why do you want to let somebody climb in? That is, that is so true, because I remember reading Postmortem, um, and I was a crime reader, so I was looking for books that had female characters in who weren't just the bodies. You know. So when I came across Case Garpetta, there were hardly any others, like maybe V.I. Warshawski and Kinsey Melhone. And I remember reading Postmortem. I could still tell you everything about that book. And I didn't sleep with a window open for years. And only now when I've got those window locks about that far, that far up. And it's all your fault. Well, it's not my fault. It's the fault of these people that actually do those things. You know, I always say I don't make this stuff up. I mean, if this didn't really happen out there, I wouldn't tell you about it. And just remember, there are people, these people who walk around. And they're looking for what's going to land on their radar. Don't let it be you. And the other thing I will tell you is um, when your gut tells you something, you listen to it. If your gut tells you not to get on that elevator with that person who just got on or to get off it, you do it. You just make a pretend something landed on your phone and pretend you're calling someone. So I, I tend to I try to listen to these things. I mean, how do you feel about the fact that you've been with Scarpetta for 33 years? Have you ever wanted to? you know, shake her off to separate. 
Well, you know, I did for a while. Uh, when when my book Chaos came out, and I believe that was 2016, I decided at that time I wasn't going to write any more Scarpettas. And I even announced it. Um, and I spent a year doing research for TV and film, trying to writing scripts and thinking I would just end up doing that. And then I came up with this idea that all morphed into me creating a character for space thrillers, a NASA person. And so I did two space thrillers that nobody in the world cares about. And and then COVID started. And meanwhile, I'd, I'd had like four or f- better part of four years with this intense education, doing really, truly everything short of going up in a rocket. And I would have done that too if somebody had let me, but it's too expensive. <laughs> but that COVID started and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I didn't want to do another one, the space thrillers. And I didn't think anybody else wanted me to either. So I said, there's no point in it. It's, it, I, I had a whole new bag of tricks, a whole new tool box after doing all this stuff for the space thrillers. What's really sad about it, though, is that Captain Callie Chase, um, I left her 22,000 miles above the planet. She's still orbiting up there in the geosynchronous <laughs> belt where all the satellites are. And it's been several years now. And it's like, I'm, I can see her like this at the window. Hello. Could somebody please bring me back to Earth? And I just tell her, you know, if we make a TV show, I'll get you home. But until then, I kind of, it's out of my control. Oh, poor Callie. Why do you think it's taken so long to get Scarpetta on TV? There was never a script that worked. Nothing ever. I mean, I have these wonderful options with these huge studios and you talk to these famous people. It just somehow it never fell into place. It never worked. And I kept saying it's almost like she would get you close and then she would run back home. And she said, I'm not having any part Mm. of this. And it will sound crazy because it wasn't me. I wanted it. And, you know, I don't I I never will quite understand it. But sometimes there are reasons for there are reasons for things that we don't understand. And maybe now is a better time for this. And maybe it's better that it's a TV series that could run for years And and I have to say the champion of it is Jamie Lee Curtis, because if she hadn't decided she wanted to do this, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And that's a hell of a champion to have. I mean, she's incredible woman, isn't she? Oh, and can you imagine what a wonderful Dorothy she's going to make? She'll be brilliant. What Didn't you like her for Scarpetta, though? It wasn't my choice. I, you know, I'm just the writer. Um, that, that was, <laughs> you know, Nicole Kidman. And I think Jamie thought that was a better way to do it. Um, you know, they're the, they're the smart people about all this. And, but she, because of Dorothy is intrinsically funny. I mean, she's hysterical. She's outrageous. She has no boundaries. She's the total antithesis of Scarpetta. I mean, she gets up there and slays it during karaoke and, you know, and Marino's her trophy husband. She's so audacious and with all her onesies and everything, and, and salacious and everything that she is. And and I thought, you know what? She's like like Jamie and I didn't even know it. And now, of course, when I'm working on Dorothy scenes, who do you think I'm seeing? Yeah. It's interesting that because I looking back, I was thinking, I don't think you've ever described Scarpetta, have you? So what do you see when you write Scarpetta? I think because I don't have any strong sense of what she looks like, I'm pretty open to what she will look like. Like mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman, whatever she does, or or I'm not wedded to that. Um, I always see her from the back. I always see her like she's walking down the hallway, heading to her office, and she's got her lab coat on. 
She's always up ahead. And then she turns in and then she's gone. And um, or I see her lab coat hanging on the back of the door like she'll be back in a minute. But she's not there. And I've always thought that's how it will end someday. People say, are you going to kill her off? I'll say, I always say, never. I'm not killing her off. But she might kill me off. And at that point, it will just be an ellipses. And, they'll, you know, you'll just hope you see her lab coat hanging in that office and, you know, she'll be back. And she probably will. I may not be, but she probably will. <laughs> that's so interesting. I can just see that, the lab coat, just hanging there. I want to ask you a bit about getting older and and how you feel about that and I I noticed that you were 50 weren't you when you married Stacey what was it that made you decide to get married a second time after because it was quite a while wasn't it after your previous marriage yeah oh yeah a long time ago I mean I the first time I was married was 1980 and um separated and divorced in around 88, about the very time I was writing postmortem, as a matter of fact. And so, yes, it was many, many years later that, that I met Stacy in 2004. And it wasn't, you know, it was an easy decision when you meet somebody that you really think you want to spend the rest of your life with. So that was why. I mean, I've been around a lot of people, but it's not everybody, no matter how wonderful they might be, it's not everybody that you want to see yourself really partnering with for the rest of your life. It's it's about so many things. It's two people that together should make each of us better and be facilitative mm-hmm. and, and, you know, be most of all really wonderful friends, you know, because it's a lonely, hard world. And so um, I, I, it had nothing to do with my age that I was aware of. I mean, at 50, I just... I still felt like I, I, I thought my, like my 40s and 50s would go on forever. I never thought that was going to end. And then then I hit my 60s and it's like somebody turned it up to full speed and said, oh, now it's going to go really fast. And I say, <laughs> but now is when it shouldn't. Now is when it shouldn't. It should have before I was 16 when school took forever for the bell to ring every day, right? Yeah. Now it's three o'clock before you've hardly gotten started. It, it definitely does feel like it speeds up. Um, how is it different, the being first marriage versus second marriage? Well, there's really nothing that's similar. Um, <laughs> seriously, uh, for one thing, uh, Charlie and I, and we're still good friends, um, we we had a very different kind of relationship. He was my professor in college and is 17 years older than me. And, and so, I mean, literally, I was 19 when I first met him. And that was a very different power dynamic and 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 when I it it, it didn't ultimately didn't work because and it wasn't his fault really he was very traditional in many ways and expected that when he needed to move when he went from church to church because he thought he wanted to go into the ministry leave you know teaching and do that um, you know I was expected to move with him and I did the first time I gave up my journalism career to do that went to Richmond. Um, and did a biography and then started doing the crime novel research. But uh, then when it was time, he wanted me to move again, which was about 1988, the year we got separated. I said, I can't do this again. It took me six years to get going. Now I'm a full-time computer programmer for the statewide medical examiner's offices. And I'm writing a book that might work this time. I can't, I can't do this. I'll catch Mm. maybe. And, and that just was the beginning of the end. And so and that was really the way people, a lot of people did things. And it wasn't collaborative. It was not a two-way street. 
And I can't live with something that's not a two-way street. I'm happy to give, but it, it has to be the other way, too. People have to help each other. And, and Charlie did do a lot of things that were helpful, like I, I've said. And and But it wasn't him. It was the lifestyle. And then the church had expectations of me that I just couldn't meet. They told him, basically, if you can't get her to move where you want to go within like four weeks, you really should probably divorce her and do it now before— um, it's a bigger deal. Do it now before you actually get land a big job. So that was the advice that the elders gave him. And that's what happened. Oh, get rid of her. She won't be obedient. So the irony is not only, okay, well, the irony is he didn't even, after a while, he didn't want to be a minister anymore. He decided not to even do it. So it was all for nothing, really. <laughs> but that was not going to work for me to go, a minister's wife? I spare everybody that trauma. They don't want me as a minister's <laughs> wife. I mean, knowing what we know now and with all your books and everything, that just sounds crazy, doesn't it? I would write children's sermons and get up in front of the congregation and all the little kids would come up and I would read these little stories to them. I mean, I tried to contribute, but at the end of the day, I wanted to be riding with the homicide detectives. And that's, you know, that's what I wanted to be doing. Did you feel like you were living someone else's life at that point? I felt like I was doing a life by prescription. And and even my friend Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, you know, that's what she said I should be doing because that's what she did. And, you know, she, my job was to go wherever my husband went. And I tried it, but um, it didn't it just didn't work. I'm not that person. I was told to do things, and my mother thought so too, get married and have children and find a wonderful man, all of which I'd have, I think is fantastic. And But that was not really what I wanted my raison d'etre to be. You know, I started out my fantasy being a professional tennis player. I, I mean, I, you know, I wanted to win tournaments and or to be somebody. I desperately wanted to be somebody because, honestly, I felt like a nobody. Well, you have more than delivered on that. Well, thank you. But the good encouragement is don't give up. People should never give up. I mean, I started out feeling like a failure more times than not. And I've had times in my life when I've still felt that way. We all do. You have to rise above it and keep your eye on what you're supposed to be doing. So let me quickly ask you the questions that I always ask at the end. What is your emotional age? My emotional age? 40. Why 40? That Because that when I turned 40, I thought people will finally... Um, take me seriously. And I felt young at 40. I felt like it was the best. My, I, I felt like I was really coming into my own and physically and in every way that, that I was at my very best at, at 40. And, um, you know, so not my twenties and 40, I started having a little bit of common sense, not as much as I would like. I have much more now. Um, but so if you give me my 65 year sensibilities at age 40, now that's a person that wouldn't would stay out of trouble. Yeah. Um, can you give us a book recommendation? Well, yes. If you like biographies, uh, try Stacey Schiff's Cleopatra. If you like Scarpetta, you will love Cleopatra because now that was a dynamo. I, I mean, what a woman, what a powerful, powerful woman who was basically the ran the whole ancient empire, you know? Uh, what advice would you give younger women? Don't be afraid of anything. Be guided by by your your inner strength and not fear, and, and be who you think that you are, not who people tell you that you are. And it's a, it's a long and it's a process. Um, but most of all, 
Love yourself. The most dangerous thing ever is self-loathing. Don't let anybody ever make you hate who and what you are because you will become a bad person and it will ruin your life and those around you. What point do you think you learned that for yourself? I think I've learned it most, believe it or not, not so much by looking at myself because I don't think I've ever had self-loathing. I do remember I got mad at myself when I'd miss easy tennis shots and I'd feel <laughs> I'd feel tremendous self-hatred for a moment, but I don't think I ever really hated myself or or, or who and what I am with all flaws. I mean, but I've seen people who have self-loathing and they are dangerous people. Love thy neighbor as thyself. The opposite of that is you will hate your neighbor as you hate yourself. So mm. do not ever go down that road. What's your superpower? My superpower is believing in something bigger than myself and, and having faith that it guides me that I'm here for a reason, even if it doesn't make much sense to me. And that's my superpower that keeps me going because it's not I, I feel like I must and I should and I want to. Um, and last one, um, how many fucks do you give? How many what? How many fucks do you give? How many? How many you word. mean that word? Yeah, that word. How many of that word do you give? About anything? About anything. Well, I give a lot of fucks about a lot of things, and there's some things I don't give a flying fuck about. And probably mm -hmm. uh, some of the things that people might think I find really important that I don't. Um, I, I've, I, my most meaningful time is when I'm alone and and feel like I'm I'm telling the story that I'm supposed to be telling as opposed to, you know, when you're on a stage with people watching you or on primetime TV or whatever, all the glorious things that I never thought I would have. But what I've found is that what I really give a fuck about is what I'm doing and not what everybody else is reacting to it, even though I care. I'm, I, that's pretty much what my focus is, is the mission. Thank you, Patricia. I've it's never been a gotten real that pleasure. question before. I said, did she really say <laughs> what I think she did? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you love this episode, you might also like my conversations with Barbara Kingsolver and Val McDermott. You'll find a link to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. If you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.